Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Nearly three months after the 2020 presidential election, there are still many Americans who believe the election was stolen. Intersecting with this claim, though not identical to it, is the urgent demand now being voiced by Republicans to overhaul the American electoral system. We should recall that claims that the election was seriously flawed or stolen found no support in the court system, but the locus of action is now moving to state legislatures, especially in contested states such as Georgia and Arizona, where bills are being proposed to change the way in which voting occurs. For many observers, these efforts seem to be a bald attempt to prevent the full enfranchisement of people of color in ways that summon up the legacy of the Jim Crow system in the South, where conservative states set their own norms and laws. This suspicion is compounded by voices such as Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who said on November 8th that without changes to mail-in balloting, we're never going to win again presidentially, referring to the Republican Party. What does the history of the struggle over the franchise, the right to vote, demonstrate in this country? Where are we today and where might we be headed? To shed light on these questions, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Fernita Tolson to Then and Now. Welcome, Fernita. Thank you so much for having me. Professor Tolson is the Vice Dean for Academic Affairs at the USC Gould School of Law, a CNN commentator and a national expert in election law. She's the author of the forthcoming book, In Congress We Trust, Enforcing Voting Rights from the Founding Fathers to the Jim Crow Era, to be published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. So, Fernita, let's jump right in. On the face of it, it would seem that there are firm constitutional foundations to protect the right to vote. We have the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment. Can you situate these amendments in context and tell us really how firmly rooted the right to vote is in this country? So wonderful question, um, in part because I, I think the, the choice of the 14th, 15th, and 19th Amendments is a good one because it reflects the uh, up the, the trajectory that this country has had in terms of expanding the scope of the electorate. Uh, so the 14th and 15th Amendments occur much earlier than the 19th, but I think that's really reflective of our history where the march towards, uh, I don't want to say universal suffrage because I, I don't know if we'll ever get there, but something approaching universal suffrage has been an ongoing prospect, uh, process. So the whole uh, prospect of we the people um, is it's really aspirational, right? Democracy is something that we have we have embraced as a culture, is something that we've worked towards. And the 14th, 15th, and 19th Amendments are reflective of that. Uh, so the, the 15th Amendment in particular enfranchised um, African-Americans. Um, and the 14th Amendment provided a penalty for those states that abridged or denied the right to vote of African-American men. Um, and then the 19th Amendment enfranchised women. And so 
really does reflect very different points in our history. Uh, but it's not until we get to uh, later in the 20th century that you really see something approaching broad enfranchisement. And so I invite your listeners to think about those amendments as a, a starting point, right? It, it was, they too were aspirational, right? They reflected a change from who we were um, in the founding and antebellum eras where uh, it was mostly property white men who enjoyed the right to vote. And so those amendments said we wanted to be someone different, but it was still, it still involved a process towards getting there. Even with the 19th Amendment, African-American women uh, were still, facing certain challenges to casting a ballot. And it wasn't until the 1960s that we see uh, a sea change in what the electorate looked like. Right. So maybe we can leap ahead to the 1960s uh, because it seems like that's the next major uh, station in this uh, development um, with respect to voting rights. Um, We have, Mm -hmm. of course, in the middle of the 1960s and 1965, the Voting Rights Act. Why, in light of the three amendments that we just mentioned, was the Voting Rights Act even necessary? Can you sort of fill in a long history um, in yeah. terms to explain what went on? Um, you know, my first question was, were there firm, firm constitutional protections in those amendments? And maybe in a formal sense, yes, but still there was a desperate need for a Voting Rights Act in the 1960s. Yeah, so that's why I emphasize how it's aspirational, because um, it's, it's one thing for our constitutional text to reflect who we want to be. It's another thing to put in practice uh, measures that actually ensure that those protections are working for the people they were designed to work for. You didn't see that in the first 70 or so years after the 14th and 15th Amendment. Instead, we had a period reconstruction where you had broad enfranchisement of African-American men across the South. Um, you had uh, biracial Southern governments. You had you know, African-Americans elected to Congress for the first time in our country's history. Uh, but then, of course, there was a backlash. And so Um, Following that period, following Reconstruction, you saw Southern states really crack down on the ability of African-Americans to cast a ballot and run for office. Uh, But David, let me be clear, this wasn't a Southern phenomenon, right? This was also happening across the North. It just wasn't as enshrined in law as it was in the South. And so really as a country, African-Americans experienced a setback uh, by the end of the 19th, early 20th century in their ability to cast a ballot. But, you know, and, and we focus a lot on the 1960s. Importantly, right, because we ended up with the Voting Rights Act in, in 65. Uh, but there were there was litigation. There were um, uh, efforts to lobby state legislatures and Congress in order to do something about the disenfranchisement of African-Americans. So so the Voting Rights Act didn't just come out of nowhere. It really came out of the efforts of African-Americans and other populations over the course of the 20th century and pushing back on some of these voting restrictions. Uh, so one case I love to teach my students is the white primary cases, which uh, were challenges to the all-white Democratic primary in Texas. Um, And that litigation was actually successful. It took 20 years, right? It was over the course of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, but it came before the Voting Rights Act, and and it was important litigation in allowing African-Americans to participate in the Democratic primary in in Texas. So so there were things outside uh, outside of statutes that definitely occurred on the ground. So in that case, were there, was that a matter of an informal practice or of an established statute that uh, that restricted participation in the primary to white men? Um, it was actually both, which is why it took so long. So at first, Texas had a, a statute that said African-Americans could not participate. Um, and then they delegated. So after that was struck down <laughs> in the first white primary case, they delegated that authority to um, the party itself to determine whether or not African-Americans could vote. Um, and then that attempt was struck down. Um, and then they didn't say anything and it became a, a, a 
it, it became sort of a practice. Um, and then a case that the Supreme Court dealt with later, the, the party had basically delegated it down to sort of a local um, organization called the Jaybirds. Uh, <laughs> and the Jaybirds were the, the entity that was responsible for facilitating discrimination in that context. And the Supreme Court struck that down. But keep in mind, our constitutional structure is such where the, you know, the delegation of discriminatory practices down more than one level from the state, it becomes that much harder for the Supreme Court to strike it down, right? Because then you get into the sphere of private organizations and their ability to decide their membership. And so this is why congressional action or state legislation becomes very important for trying to police these domains, because the court can only do so much. Right. So this is really interesting. Uh, so mm -hmm. if the Democratic Party, for instance, could be deemed a private organization mm -hmm. and thus not subject or, or, or can escape the scrutiny of, of, sort mm -hmm. of uh, the Supreme sitting on high. But I, I guess this is the question that is germane to today in terms of what's mm -hmm. going on today. What actually were the tactics and practices and strategies of states and, for that matter, local actors between the 15th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act? In other words, what was the right. game that was uh, being played to skirt you know, what would seem to be the clear uh, law of the land in the 15th Amendment? I really love how you frame the question. To, to, to southern states. It, you, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I really love how you frame the question because it really was this partnership between the state and these private organizations like the political parties, to some extent, the Ku Klux Klan and other uh, white terror organizations. Right. They were um, there really was this marriage to try to keep African-Americans out of the electorate. And so states in the 1890s, they became more formal about changing their voter uh, registration requirements, for example, imposing literacy tests, imposing poll taxes, and they actually put these things in their state constitutions. Um, and, and part of the, the thinking was that these things are race neutral. They were really concerned about the 15th Amendment. Like the 14-2, section, section two of the 14th Amendment had already proven to be uh, really just a paper barrier, right? It didn't, it was never enforced. Uh, there was chatter about enforcing it, but Congress never actually went out there and enforced a penalty of, of reduced representation against the states. Um, and so really they were concerned about the 15th Amendment. And at the time, these states believed that as long as it's facially race neutral, it would not run afoul of the 15th Amendment. And so this is why the, the nature of the restrictions didn't apply to one particular race, but they were exclusionary. Like most African-Americans could not afford to pay a poll tax, even a poll tax of one or two dollars at a time where the average Southerner was making less than $90 a year. Um, yeah, voter registration requirements. We take that for granted today, but a lot of individuals emerging from slavery didn't know the name of the street that they lived on because it didn't have one, right? So to say that someone has to have an address um, is a, another exclusionary tactic. Uh, literacy requirements at a time where both black and white populations had high literacy rates, right? So these are things that were technically race neutral uh, but had a racially discriminatory impact. Uh, but but also keep in mind, a lot of this depended on the election administrators, right? So they wouldn't apply the rules equally to black and white. And so that's why it became so effective. Um, and, and in terms of the partnership, uh, the Ku Klux Klan uh, did a lot of work in keeping African-Americans away from the polls on election, on election day. Um, and then the Democratic Party made sure that, that African-Americans couldn't vote in the Democratic primary. And so when you take all of that together, um, you end up with African American African American voter turnout and participation in the South that's approaching zero. Wow. And at in this period, 
say, mm-hmm. between the 1890s and, and 1960s. Can you chart for us what the opposition to this attempt to suppress the voting rights of African-Americans look like? Was there also a partnership on the other side agitating uh, for full enforcement of the 14th and 15th Amendments? What did that look like? And when did it begin to gain momentum? Was it only until the 50s that things began to come together um, when we have a civil rights movement? I wouldn't say it was the 50s, right? I would say that you had uh, people working on different fronts on the other side to challenge some of these things. Um, there were, uh, so, so David, let me be clear. I don't want you to think that um, with the 1876 presidential election, everybody woke up and Black people couldn't vote. I know, <laughs> I know we tend to think about Reconstruction as just like this 10-year period where Black people could vote and then they couldn't. Um, it, it really was this process and it was a long drawn out process, right? So you had these partisan struggles in the 1870s and the 1880s where control of Congress was going back and forth between the Republicans and the Democrats that made it difficult for the Democrats to just come out and disenfranchise Black people all at one, one time, right? That You know, you had the Democrats in Congress cooperating with the Democrats at the state level, but this is, was a, a process that took time. This is why Mississippi was the first state in 1890 to formally seek to change its, its constitutional um, its constitution to disenfranchise, right? It took time to get to this point. South Carolina had a few laws in the 1880s where they disenfranchised, but they didn't formally change their constitution into the 1890s. Uh, it's also important to recognize, though, that the Republican Party, even though that they had, even though they had backed away from their widespread support for African American enfranchisement, there were still Republicans in the 1890s who um, really wanted to pick up the mantle of the radical Republicans. Right. They wanted to um, protect African-Americans. They wanted to be more aggressive on that front again. And so in the 1890s, for the first time in 20 years, you really see conversations around enforcing Section 2 of the 14th Amendment against the southern states. Um, they, the Republicans in Congress in 1890 proposed a federal elections bill that would require greater oversight of congressional elections in order to prevent the type of disenfranchisement that was becoming more prevalent. Um, and so you, you, there's a coalition there, even though the coalition isn't as robust as the coalition that existed in 1866 to 1870. Uh, even at the beginning of the 20th century, you see legal challenges to, um, to disenfranchising laws. And these challenges were bankrolled by people like Booker, versus, uh, Booker T. Washington. Um, th- there was also support from the NAACP later on after that organization was founded. Um, the uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and it uh, wrote in the early 20th century that states should have suffered a penalty of Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, right? So there were still conversations going on around these issues, even if we don't see uh, substantial success to the 1960s, right? I just, I don't want the listeners to think that um, from 1876 to 1965, nothing happened. No, people were doing work around this and there were some successes, uh, but it's not really until the 1965 Voting Rights Act that you see the widespread change to our electorate that we're still trying to hold on to today. Yeah. And can you situate mm-hmm. that act, the Voting Rights Act, uh, in the sweep of this history that you've just described? Yes. Yeah, so um, in the late 1950s, um, there's some litigation in individual states to challenge uh, disenfranchising laws and practices, but it's really inefficient. Uh, and in fact, you know, you the people in the Department of Justice will often end up before these Southern judges who would make it very difficult to have a successful case at all. And so I think this this really shaped the contours of the Voting Rights Act because they the, the federal government realized that they needed some mechanism to 
prevent the case-by-case litigation that had been unsuccessful up to that point. And, and that's how we get Section 5 and Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act. So those two provisions together require certain jurisdictions, um, <clears throat> excuse me, mostly in the South, right? We think about the non-states that were in the Confederacy and a few other jurisdictions, but there was also a few states outside of the South that end up captured by this coverage formula uh, because they had really bad records on voting rights. Um, and so because of that, under preclearance, they had to preclear any change to their voting law with the federal government before that change could go into effect. Um, and this basically had the effect of remaking the entire South, right? Just in terms of the electorate and increase in African-American turnout and bring it almost um, equal to that of white turnout uh, because it made it very difficult for these jurisdictions to implement disenfranchising laws. Either the Department of Justice stopped it or if they went to court about it, the courts would stop it. Uh, so I do think that the Voting Rights Act, because it's basically suspended any changes in a way that no law before it had, uh, was able to have this effect in a way that the, the sort of the piecemeal litigation, even the successes weren't really able to do. Because the white primary cases, which I referenced earlier, of course, it, re- it remade the electorate in Texas to some extent, but even that was limited. That success was limited. Martin Luther King um talked about the Voting Rights Act in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that he um, not only expected, but saw um, before he died, the expected white backlash to the Voting Rights Act. Um, how substantial was the white backlash to the Voting Rights Act um, in law and in politics? So uh, let's be clear, there's always backlash, right? So Redemption, the period following Reconstruction, that was backlash. Um, the uh, period following 1965, the backlash was the the, the Burger Court, <laughs> right? So, to some extent, you know, this the Burger Court, um, you know, they started to chip away at many of the civil rights gains of the 1960s, reflecting the rise of the conservative coalition um, on the political side. Um, uh, many of them were uh, Nixon appointees. And so it was it was it, it really turned the page from the gains of the 1960s. Uh, but let's not think about it in terms of immediate backlash. The backlash itself um, took time. Right. So over the course of the 1970s and 1980s, you have the court reading the um, the Voting Rights Act more narrowly. Uh, so in 1980, there was a case called City of Mobile versus Bolden, where the court um, read the 15th Amendment and Section 2 of the Voting, right, Voting Rights Act, which pro- prohibits any practice or procedure that has a racially discriminatory um, now effect. Now it, it says effect um, uh, from uh, from going in, from from existing. Basically, you violate that law if it's racially discriminatory. Uh, so in City of Mobile, the court read the 15th Amendment and Section 2 to require proof of racially discriminatory intent. Intent is very difficult to prove in court, right? Because that goes to, now there may be objective evidence of intent, effect can be objective evidence of intent, but intent, the court is usually looking for some type of subjective, something about the subjective motivation of the decision maker. So smoking gun statements, things of that nature. Um, and so it's it's a standard that's very hard to meet. Uh, that was 1980. So we're only talking 15 years after the Voting Rights Act. The court has, has basically read section two of the Voting Rights Act out of the statute. Um, it's not until Congress amended Section 2 in 1982 to only require evidence of an in, of effect as sufficient to prove a violation of the statute that Section 2 becomes another tool in the arsenal of civil rights advocates. Um, so 
when you think about backlash, the backlash actually um, took a while. Uh, I know that, you know, Shelby County, uh, the Shelby County decision, which invalidated a portion of the preclearance provision that we were talking about earlier, David, that was 2013. Uh, But really, it was this 35-year march towards minimizing the scope of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, There are other decisions that the court issued that also read the act narrowly. Uh, and they steadily chipped away at it until we got to Shelby County in 2013. Uh, so even that decision didn't come out of nowhere. Right. So maybe we'll just take a pause for a minute and reflect on the big picture. Um, okay. Because it seems to me that what you've described is a kind of chess game. Um, you have sort of large principles laid out and then... Mm-hmm a constant game of evasion, deflection, suppression to sort of evade those sort of large Mm -hmm. legal blocks, as it were. Um, And it's a constant process. And it's about um, one step forward and a half a step backward or two steps backward and then a step Mm -hmm. forward, rather than sort of the arc of the moral universe inexorably bending toward justice. how, is is that a good way to see it? Um, is it kind of a chess game in which this pro- constant process of evasion and deflection is going on? Or are things really moving forward in a kind of progressive fashion? Um, so in my heart of hearts, <laughs> I like to think that those two things are not necessarily inconsistent, right? So the moral arc of the universe can bend towards justice, even if we take you know, two steps forward and a half a step back or a step back or whatever. We're still moving forward, right? Um, It does get frustrating. Uh, But even in my lifetime, I've seen substantial changes to the electorate, right? I've seen voters uh, turn out and wait in line for nine, 10 hours because they are excited to vote, excited to cast a ballot, and they feel honored to have the privilege to do so in my lifetime. Um, And the reason that's significant is because Theoretically, for people who do this work and who think who believe in a strong Voting Rights Act, who believe in an expansive 14th and 15th Amendment, we haven't had much success on the judicial front. Right. The court, as I mentioned before, the court has consistently chipped away at the protections of the Constitution and the statutory regimes designed to protect the right to vote. Uh, But despite that, I don't feel as if all has been lost. Right. Instead, it it just forces our attention in, in other spaces. Um, And that's how I know we're still moving forward. So, for example, a lot of states have uh, been proactive in protecting the right to vote. We talk a lot about voter suppression at the state level. We talk a lot about bad actors who are um, trying to manipulate voting rights for partisan reasons. But there are also good actors who want to make sure that their residents can cast ballots. And so that that, too, is success. We've had independent commissions. Um, put in place to do to to draw the lines for state legislative and congressional districts. That's also a success. Um, with the COVID nineteen pandemic, some states have made it easier for um, their residents to vote by mail. Uh, and in some of these uh, expansions of the right to vote and access, will still be in place as we move forward. That is also a success. And so I don't want that to get lost in the narrative because we focus so much on suppression and and the two steps back that we don't, t- we don't spend enough time talking about how we has, have also moved forward. Right. I should just add that the Luskin Center um, actually uh, undertook a, a research project on uh, voter enfranchisement in the state of California, which uh, mm-hmm. showed progress over time mm-hmm. from 
period in which uh, people of Chinese origin were, uh, were were prohibited from participating in the electoral process. Um, so indeed, there is uh, uh, that um, uh, forward movement at the state level. Um, I want to now turn our attention to um, the present. And I have to say that um, when uh, the election took place, uh, there were few people more than you whom I wanted to listen to to make sense of what was going on. Um, uh, you Thank really you were extraordinarily clear um, in, 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 and helpful in making sense of what was going on. So maybe you can reprise that act from November um, and help us understand now with a bit of distance what happened um, in the 2020 election from an electric election law point of view, from a legal point of view. What was going on? Um, it seemed to me to be a rather extraordinary spectacle underway. Was it? Is this the kind of thing that happens uh, and, and has happened in the past? Or was this really a different order of magnitude altogether? So this is actually a question I've struggled with because have we had elections that were worse than 2020 in terms of the fallout? And when I refer to the fallout, I'm talking about the the big lie, right? The challenges to the legitimacy of the election, the events leading to Jan the Janu January 6th Capitol riot, the fallout from that, the impeachment of the president, like that series of events. Have we seen anything that remarkable in this country? Yes, right? The 1876 election, people don't realize how close we came to having dueling inaugurations, <laughs> right? Like, you know- Can you just remind what happened in the 1876 election? So in the 1876 election, there was a uh, it was a, a statistical tie, basically, between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden, who was governor of New York um, and, and Hayes was governor of Ohio. Um, and so it came down to the contested electoral slates of three states where there was substantial fraud. Um, and so Congress ended up putting together an electoral commission to try to resolve the contested uh, slates. And they resolved it basically in favor of Hayes. But the story that comes out of the 1876 election is that a deal was struck, that they would give, that the Democrat, Democrats would acquiesce in giving the presidency to Hayes, provided that he pulled troops out of the Southern states. Uh, but in Congress, during the actual counting of the Electoral College votes, the Speaker of the House um, was, uh, and he was, he was a Democrat, but he was, he was, uh, he basically did his duty. Right. He made sure that there were no shenanigans and that the, the electoral count, the, the electoral votes were counted in favor of Hayes, which um, I'm not certain would have necessarily played out the same way today. Uh, one of the things that bothers me about the November 2020 election to, to draw a parallel is that uh, we might have had a different president had both the House and the Senate been in Republican hands during the uh, counting of the electoral college votes. Uh, and that worries me, right? That says something about where we are as a democracy, where our um, the health of our democracy and the the future, who the 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 leader of the free world is, comes down to the partisan composition of Congress. That means, as a if that's our system, that's a problem. Um, but in terms of historical parallels, yes, things have been this bad before. Um, I wouldn't even say that 2000 was as bad as 2016. So the election of 2000 is another historical example. I hate to call it historical because that makes me feel old. But it is another historical example where for, I think, 37 days, we didn't know who the president of the United States would be. But that was like we literally didn't know. It came down to Florida. It came down to 546 votes. 
um, and the controversy over the the 2000 election was over the the counting of those votes. I think in some ways the election of 2000, the reason it's less concerning than 2016 is because it involved a clear legal dispute, right? They were arguing over uh, which ballot should count, right? If, you know, that Chad became a very famous term that came out of the 2000 election, right? The, the dimples in the, the ballot, uh, whether or not the Chad is pushed all the way through, right? The dangling Chads and, you know, so, but it was a very clear legal dispute in a way that wasn't true in 2016, right? Joe Biden won the election. <laughs> he won Pennsylvania. He won the recounts. He won Georgia, right? And so, yeah, Despite that, we're still having arguments over whether or not the President Trump won. Um, and I just I didn't know I did not know how to have that conversation. Right. That's not a legal dispute. Um, that's not even a political dispute. Um, but it's because the leader of the free world is casting doubt on the legitimacy of the elections. You have to have a conversation that you don't know how to have that doesn't fit within the parameters of anything that I've ever studied or learned. And that was difficult for me. Um, and it raised very, but it did raise very important questions about who we want to be as a country and how do we want this process to unfold. Like, for example, on January 6th, when a vice president oversees the count, it's his job ministerial, right? Does he just oversee it? Does he count, help count the votes? Or does he play a more substantive role in deciding which slate of electors is a legitimate elector, right? And so these are all questions that were raised by the president's refusal to accept that he had lost this election. Um, and that is a very unusual way to confront a legal question, right? It's one thing if we're having that conversation in the context of a real legal dispute, right? In 2000, there was a legal dispute. In 2016, we are questioning the very foundation of our democracy in the context of a non-issue. There was no substantial voter fraud in this election. There was nothing that sort of forced the introspection that we were having at the time that, you know, the events from November 3rd to January 6th unfolded. And so I think it put all many legal scholars and political scientists and people who do this work in a very uncomfortable position. Right. So what do you think was going on? What was going on, not with the claim that the election was stolen, but the claim <laughs> that the electoral system was flawed, uh, the claim that what is needed is really to restrict mail-in balloting, um, that this is somehow you know, a deficiency in the system. What, what, what's that about in your mind? So that's about partisanship, right? Because to the extent that we hold ourselves out as a democracy, it can never be a flaw in the system for more people to participate in that democracy. That's the nature of a democracy. Um, and so notably, the claims about mail-in voting uh, were evidence-free, right? So they, there were claims that it facilitated fraud in our elections, but that's, that's not a claim that was ever proven to be true. Um, and so I do think that at the end of the day, it was convenient in terms of, you know, pushing a certain partisan ideology to, to attack vote by mail. Um, and this is only the beginning, right? One of the things that scared me about the election was not necessarily election day or the immediate aftermath. It's the fact that we forget. <laughs> we always feel like things are okay once we get past a bad election. It's like, oh, we dodged that bullet and then we move on to the next thing and we forget to, to fix the problems that we saw coming out of the last election. And this election in particular lends itself to that because we had north of 150 million people participate in this election, right? So one of the largest turnouts I think we've ever had in history. Um, and so, so I do think that because of that, it has given us a false sense of security, 
right? We ignored that a lot of people kept, you know, turned out and voted despite the barriers that were placed in their way as they tried to exercise the right to vote. And we'll never be able to count the number of people who were not able to vote because of those barriers. Um, and so my only, my only thing is we love the rhetoric of democracy. We hold ourselves out as a democracy, but our behavior is inconsistent with the democracy. If we don't want to be a democracy, then we need to call ourselves something else. So I wonder if you would say, well, let me phrase it as a question. What worked and what didn't work? Um, the obvious data point is that 61 or so legal suits were filed in mm -hmm. jurisdictions and everyone failed, uh, thus upholding the outcome of the election. Would you say, as a general matter, the legal system held um, in the wake of the November 2020 election? The rule of law held, the right? Um, yeah, the, the, the courts did their job. Um, and I will say it was courts uh, appointed by, you know, a, a range of judges. I mean, I'm sorry, a range of presidents from, you know, Clinton, Obama, uh, Bush <laughs> and Trump. Right. So we it wasn't it, it wasn't, you know, quote unquote, judges only appointed by Democratic presidents. It, the rule of law held. Um, and I think that that was a really important testament to um, our system. Uh, but. One thing this election revealed is um, that there are still significant flaws in um, the statutory structure that existed even before Shelby County. And let me explain what I mean. So keep in mind the nature of the complaints coming out of this election cycle. So you had states that were more accommodating to voters seeking to cast a ballot during the global pandemic, right? They made it easier to vote by mail. They made it easier to uh, use a Dropbox, <clears throat> and so on. But there were states that did not make it easier. Um, there were, you know, in Texas in particular, I think Harris County, which has a bigger population than Rhode Island, had one Dropbox, right? So there were states that did not make it easier. The Voting Rights Act, even with the preclearance provision, wouldn't have done anything about that. And that was that was something that was very striking to me, right? Because uh, I'm, I am one of those people who sort of think about the Voting Rights Act as one of the greatest legislative achievements that this country has put forward. Uh, but I'm not sure it would have been very effective to, to sort of prevent what happened in some states this past presidential election cycle. So the Voting Rights Act is designed to prevent discriminatory laws from going into place to prevent states from hurting voters. It doesn't necessarily require states to help voters. Right. And so I think this past election cycle revealed the need for a more race neutral sort of universal approach to voting. Right. We need a commitment that everyone can vote and that it should be relatively easy to vote for those who are entitled to cast a ballot. Until we have that commitment, I don't know if there's a statutory regime that we can design to address some of the challenges that we had this past election cycle. Because one thing about voter suppression and attempts to suppress the vote more generally is that it just evolves. Um, that is part of the backlash, too. So even post-1965, where the Voting Rights Act was able to root out a lot of the, um, the discriminatory practices that get a lot of attention, poll taxes, literacy tests, and so on, um, states just think of new ways to try to make it easier to vote. Uh, to look at some of the modern practices, voter purges, right? Um, Voter ID requirements, very restrictive voter ID requirements, 
um, the the fact that you have to throw out out of precinct ballots, right? If somebody casts a ballot in a precinct they don't live in, and you just have to automatically throw it out, um, you know, like just and and that 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 latter restriction was actually the focus of a, court, a case that the Supreme Court heard today under uh, a challenge under Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. So these are all things that are going on where they're still suppressive, even if they don't look like you know, a, a literacy test or a poll tax. It's just suppression evolves. And that is also part of the backlash. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about what the Supreme Court is taking up um, as we speak today? Right. So um, so the Supreme Court today heard arguments in a case out of Arizona where Arizona banned uh, the ability of uh, individuals to get help from uh, anyone other than immediate family members and filling out their ballot, uh, which is um, pretty important for people with disabilities uh, people from, you know, older people, uh, people from uh, historically disadvantaged backgrounds, like so. It's you know, it's 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 still it's it's a, it's a type of restriction that actually matters for certain demographics. Um, and then that the other Arizona law dealt with out of precinct ballots, so they automatically throw them out. Um, and and keep in mind, our systems are not perfect. People file ballots out of they vote out of precinct because their registration might be wrong. They might show up at the wrong place. They might do everything that they're supposed to do and the system messes up, you know, so there are any number of reasons why people file uh, ballots out of precinct. Uh, so these uh, practices are being challenged under Section 2 of the, the Voting Rights Act. Is practices that, uh, ban, the ban on these practices has a discriminatory effect on uh, people on the basis of race. And so one of the reasons why the litigation is notable is because uh, Section 2 has um, had some challenges in recent years especially post-Shelby County, where Section 2 prevents practices that have an effect of discriminating on the basis of race. The Supreme Court does not like effects. They do not like effects-based statutes. Um, They want something closer to discriminatory intent, right? They want proof that the the practice is intended to discriminate against a minority population. As I mentioned prior in discussing the City of Mobile case, that is a very difficult standard to meet. Um, So it is possible that the Supreme Court in here in this case could narrow the scope of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to require something close to intent, right? To raise the burden on plaintiffs trying to challenge certain practices to show that the practice has uh, uh, poses a significant burden on minority populations. Um, or, or alternatively, uh, given the state an opportunity to um, respond even in the face of a statistical disparity, right? Even if the plaintiff shows that it has an effect as the statute requires, Given the state an opportunity to come forward to say something like, you know, we need this type of restriction in order to protect the integrity of the ballot or to prevent voter fraud or um, any number of excuses that has that have become popular in recent years. I should just note that we are recording today on March uh, 2nd, Tuesday, when the Supreme Court is hearing. Uh, yes. Uh, um, you know, is it reasonable to assume, Franita, that the, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing cases of this nature like every second day. Uh, The Brennan Center at NYU has charted more than 250 proposals circulating about in state legislatures to modify reform. Um, The electoral system seems to be with the intent of making it more restrictive. So what does that landscape look like to you over the next few years, you know, coming out of the 2020 election? It seems to me that one of the main takeaways is is not the urgency to create that universal uh, uh, system of protection, but on the contrary, to create 
know, many local and state-based statutes that have the opposite effect. What does it look like to you over the next spell? I'm actually conflicted over this. So the, the first thing is that I'm not surprised, right? Because as I pointed out, the backlash is expected. Hearing that, that 150 million people voted, you know, that, that basically tells you that you're going to see backlash. Um, I'm less clear on the why, right? So um, President Trump got 74 million votes, which was the, the most votes that a, Repub- a sitting president ever received, right? Um, Joe, Joe Biden beat that by about six or seven million votes, right? But of course, these the votes are dispersed over, you know, 50, 50 states, uh, 51 jurisdictions, counting Washington, D.C. But um, so, so the, the reason I'm conflicted by this is because of the assumptions that we have about voter turnout and which party benefits. I'm not entirely sure anymore. Um, do Are we still certain? that Republicans don't benefit in certain places when people can vote. I'm not sure that that holds anymore, given that the number the number of people who turned out to vote, a significant number of them were also Republicans. Now I could see Republicans in some states saying, okay, it is the, the divide between the population here is, is almost even. And so yes, we're gonna impose more voter restrictions. So Georgia, of course, they are going to make it harder to vote in Georgia, right? Georgia was really, really close. Um, but it seems like that uh, that assumption is universal. Uh, given the number of restrictions that are being proposed right now, I think you said, Brennan Center said something like 250. I think it's, it's something like 33 states. Like, why is why are all of these Republicans assuming in every state that they can't compete? I'm just not certain that that's true anymore. Uh, but that assumption is what's driving all of this, right? So we can talk about the Georgias, we can talk about the Texases, because Texas is also another state that will probably make it more difficult to vote because uh, that that state is starting to trend purple. Uh, but you know, but generally speaking, it just seems odd to me that there's this universal assumption uh, by Republicans that they won't be able to compete, even in states where there is it's a red state. Um, so. So I guess that's that's number one. That's part of my conflict. But number two, just assuming that that assumption will will drive everything, I think that it it will remain the case that we will see more and more restrictions. It will get worse before it gets better. So the 250 proposed restrictions right now, this is only the beginning, which is terrifying. Uh, but it also reveals the importance of having federal legislation on this front to address some of these these issues. There are certain things that can be nationalized. Um, H.R. 1 is a, an important example of that. So H.R. 1 is a bill currently pending in Congress. And in fact, I think it goes to the floor of the House this week um, where it, it, it remakes large portions of our political system. It, it creates independent uh, commissions. It requires independent commissions for congressional districts. It, it changes. It makes certain changes to campaign finance. Um, it also uh, substantially um, it, it, it should substantially increase the size of the electorate because it has automatic voter registration. Um, it also has same-day voter registration. And so, I mean, the bill is is it, it, it's, it's a really important step to counter some of the stuff that is happening at the state level. Um, another bill is H.R. 4, which will reauthorize the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act, right? Like these two bills together, one... Uh, which is sort of a more commitment to a universalist model of voting, and two, which is more race conscious, I really see them as a marriage or as a way of uh, moving the ball forward, 
not just by focusing on the impact of these restrictions on racial minorities, but really focusing on the impact of these restrictions on everyone by trying to make it easier for everybody to become a voter. And so um, federal legislation on this front will become key because it will get worse before it gets better. So as we move towards the end, um, we come um, to the subject of your book, um, because you just mentioned federal legislation, and yes. the title of your forthcoming book is In Congress We Trust. So can we trust Congress? Sometimes. <laughs> That's the, the worry about the book. It gives the impression that we can trust Congress all the time. Um, so, so let me make, make two points. It will always matter who we elect, right? Like, um, in the wake of uh, the second impeachment of President Trump, I remember getting questions about whether or not we needed to change our impeachment our impeachment procedures in the Constitution in, in order to um, make sure that they work. And I'm like, yeah, we can do that. But at the end of the day, it just matters that we elect better people, right? Like, um, as if we're not going to elect better people, it doesn't matter what procedures we have in place. It doesn't matter what the Constitution says, right? We had a Republican Congress that didn't police the president. If that is what is going on, then it doesn't matter what they are empowered to do if they refuse to use it. Uh, the book kind of works the same way, right? So the book is an attempt to show how Congress has used this authority over elections historically, uh, but you still have to have a Congress that wants to use the powers for good. <laughs> that is a key part of the book, uh, because one of the, the themes in the book is about how partisanship has shaped Congress's um, use of its own powers. So at various points in Congress's, um, over, over the history of Congress, you'll see Congress being very aggressive in policing states and their political systems, right? Sort of uh, at that mission stage, determining whether or not states are acting consistent with the Republican form of government. Um, but at other stages, just completely ignoring that states have run afoul of um, some of the constitutional protections that some of the protections that the Constitution has in place for voters. So, for example, the failure to enforce Section Two of the Voting of uh, Section Two of the Fourteenth Amendment against states, uh, a lot of times that was a political calculation. That wasn't because Congress wasn't empowered to enforce it. That was because Congress was declining to enforce it in lieu of pursuing other legislative priorities. Um, and so you, you really do see sort of this uh, mix of, uh, yes, the Constitution empowers Congress more broadly than we conceive, right? So pushing against Shelby County's uh, notion that congressional power over elections is actually very narrow, showing that historically has been very broad, but also noting that Congress itself has been opportunistic in how it's used its powers um, in a way that shows that ultimately who we elect matters almost as much as how the, how the Constitution empowers these entities to act. So a final question for you, Franita, um, from your perspective as a um, brilliant student of, uh, of the history of election law, um, what does voting and the debate over voting tell us, particularly about race? Is voting the mirror unto American society of its attitude and approach to racial relations? Yes. Um, that's a really terrific question, because I do think that uh, so much of the study of voting rights is the study of race in this country, uh, because uh, racism is about power and political power is about power. Uh, and so really the overlap of those of politics and race is, is unescapable. Um, this is why in this domain of elections and voting, you see attempts to 
target voters on the basis of race because it's a useful criteria for disenfranchisement, right? It, it ties in neatly to our history of oppressing people of color in this country. It's just, there's just so much synergy there. So you can't understand voting rights in elections without understanding race and understanding how racial categories were constructed in this country and how political power has evolved and devolved in this country as well. Um, so much of the struggle between the political parties in particular has been a, a struggle um, over uh, racial politics. I found an a, a interesting article a while back that talked about how free Blacks tended to support the Federalist Party at the founding uh, in those states where free Blacks could cast ballots. And, and as a result, when the Jeffersonian Republicans came into power in various states, they would just disenfranchise Black people, right? And so you really can't understand that dynamic without talking about race and understanding race in this, in this country. And that's really, uh, you know, also about the fight between political parties. And so, so the race is, is, is really a central part of the discussion of voting rights in elections. And I don't think you can disaggregate the, the two. And, and I don't think we should. Uh, but it also is a reminder that race is something that uh, will continue to divide us if we are not careful. Um, especially as we are on the cusp of seeing more voting restrictions in the states, restrictions that will, un will undoubtedly have a disproportionate impact on voters of color. Well, this has been a most illuminating hour. Um, thank you so much, Professor Fernita Tolson of the USC Gould School of Law for joining us on Then and Now. It's really been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. And thank you to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. That's L-U-S-K-I-N center at history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producers, Maya Ferdman, and our interns, Atre Mitra and Jackson Gregory. Until next time, wishing you a pleasant and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>